Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. The writer Helen MacDonald is best known for the award-winning memoir H is for Hawk and other distinguished works that explore our relationship to the natural world. Their new novel Profit is something very different, but no less compelling. It's a speculative novel of ideas that will appeal to fans of literary science fiction and action thrillers as well as fans of Helen's earlier work. The novel is a collaboration with the Irish-American musician Sin Blachet. I caught up with both authors last week to find out more. It's rare for a work of fiction to have two authors, so can I start by asking you how you met and what the genesis of this project is? Well, it's quite a funny story. How we met was on Twitter, now of course X. I'm not calling it. We're not calling it that, we're calling it Twitter. (laughs) So uh, about 12 or 13 years ago, I had friends on Twitter who were kind of like into fandom and they were talking a lot at that time about Doctor Who. Yeah. And Sin was kind of in a kind of that friend circle and, you know, Sin said some stuff and I said some stuff and I felt, oh, yes, Sin knows what they're doing. Well, you know, back in the day of Twitter, you're talking like 2009, 2010, that kind of thing. You were able to see other people's conversations and you didn't necessarily see the other person and what they were saying, but you saw what your friend was saying. Mm. And so you would be able to tell from that conversation whether the person they were talking to was someone that you wanted to see the whole conversation with. So we decided through watching other people talk to each other mm. that we wanted to see the rest of that conversation. So we, we became wanted, friends, yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's how we became friends, though we didn't talk very often. We didn't. And I mean, we kind of just sort of said hello occasionally. And then there, there was one time where I think I saw I sent you a, a Star Wars T-shirt. Yeah, very aggressively sent me a Star Wars T-shirt. It was uh, a case of me finding. It was... Uh, R. Stevens, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And I was on the internet randomly posting about things that are cool. And I was like, look at this t-shirt. Isn't this cool? And Helen went, I'll get it. Yeah. So I aggressively sent this t-shirt to send. But that was kind of it for years. And then something happened in 2020. (laughs) Yeah, this weird thing happened. (laughs) Um, The pandemic really shut down both our lives as it did, you know, everyone's. And I didn't have personal tragedies surrounding me at that time, you know, it was just very, very grim. I was meant to go to Midway Asshole in the Pacific to do research for my new nature writing book, but obviously that didn't happen. So I was at home with my parrots feeling very sorry for myself. And I started talking to Sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were um, both just stuck in our houses and we were uh, watching TV like everybody else. And we were watching movies like everybody else. I was playing video games and we just ended up agreeing on a lot of things on a lot of things about tvs about uh, tv shows about books about politics politics a lot of political discussions because things were grim it was 2020 it was grim awful (laughs) grim grim and um grimmer your mind back we spent a lot of time talking about nostalgia we increasingly were becoming fascinated with the recycling of the past this you know we we know obviously we knew that you know, right-wing politics has always recruited mm-hmm. nostalgia as a very powerful tool, you know, propaganda tool. You know, we always think of sort of Reagan looking oh, back yeah. on we his white picket fences. Yeah, but... um, and and I, I know I did a lot of work in my old career as a historian of science looking at um, natural history in World War II in Britain and how nature had been recruited to kind of serve this nostalgic British, you know, bucolic vision mm. that we were supposed to be fighting to protect. So quite naturally, we kind of fell into that. We talked about it a lot. And at the time... 
you were playing this amazing video game called Control. Control. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by Remedy Entertainment. So the idea is is that there's a shadowy uh, federal bureau that uh, like tries to find and control these items that people have imbued with power from just having them mean something in their lives. They've uh, they've spent so much time considering floppy disks as something that's important. So that then becomes an item of power that has its own power that you can then draw and whatever else. It's, re- is, it's a really cool game. It's set in it's this amazing, amazing yeah. mid-century modern, creepy as hell building uh, in New York. It's brutalist. very, very cool. You'd be delighted yeah. to know that I did actually think of Control while reading this hey! book. Uh, so no, you have succeeded really in capturing know. the spirit of Control in this excellent Congratulations. <laughs> but, you know, the, the book was sort of built out of so many different things. And, and I mean, I re- we really, it started, a couple of things happened, you know. It was Control that kicked off your Kicked off discussing about, about yeah. it. And, and, of course, you know, we were thinking a lot about how if you look on Facebook, you'll see, you know, a, a picture of a 1980s bicycle or a chocolate bar and you feel that little sort of twang of nostalgia that generates engagement clicks, right? I mean, it's incredibly... But it also makes people incredibly angry and personally attacked if you say you don't like that bicycle and, you know, things like... It becomes very political very quickly and it's all based on their own personal brand of nostalgia. Yeah, so we, we sort of thought we'd love to write a book about the literal weaponization of nostalgia. So I sort of said to Sin, hey, Sin, <laughs> I'm thinking of writing a novella a sci-fi novella because I can't write my nature book. Do you want to help out with the dialogue? Do you want to help out? Do you want to write it with me? Mm. I said yes, and I said that it wasn't going to be a novella. And I laughed at you. Yeah. I was like, yeah, it'll be 40,000 words. Don't worry, I know books. And now you've got (laughs) got 500 pages, something like that. (laughs) Right, this monster. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In practice, practice, how did you work together? Was it smooth and easy ride with lots of agreement and collaboration or something more tense? (laughs) Uh, so we, it was, it was, it was tense to begin with. We were just learning the, I mean, I had to learn the ropes from scratch. Sin, Sin has been collaborating with other writers, you know, forever, but yeah. I'd never done that. You know, nature writing is very much a kind of, you know, 19th century wandering around the hills, speculating <laughs> on mountains, you know, it's very romantic and sort of solitary and I'd never written with anyone else. So I had to really put my ego aside. And I remember being, you know, there was some, some moments early on where I'd like send some stuff I'd written to Sin and Sin would be like, you know, quite reasonably, this is, it's, you know, and you need to change this. And I'd get quite stroppy inside and I'd be like, I've, my books have won of prizes. I mean, and, you know, that was really funny to look back on because, you know, Sin is a genius and, and, you know, I hadn't realized how vain I was or how insecure I was about my, my writing until I worked collaboratively. And, and it was astonishing. So we, we just wrote, bits sent them backwards and forwards we, we it was like a live edit that we were doing constantly yeah. so basically one person would write something say oh i have this what do you think of it the other person would not necessarily answer with what we thought about it but come back with our notes and um, or a next edits. bit or another bit yeah or or we continue a, a the next part and or we'd rewrite the entire thing or add parts that needed to go between sentences and um then we'd send that back and we go so what do you think of this and so it was a constant back and forth Every single page of that book yeah. is both of us writing it. And most of this was done um, via direct messages on social media. Yeah, or email. Or I mean, 
email later and later we started talking in real life that was weird hearing your voice mm-hmm. yeah um we did Fair. kind of yeah because we just realized it was faster but yeah it, the whole thing was written um you know characterization plot you know in a deeply collaborative way you know it was like weaving rather than stacking chapters together it was it was very very intensely joyful i think that was the main thing that it felt like yeah we had a lot of fun yeah Yeah. a lot of what we were trying to do was uh write a book that we wanted to read so uh, and we were writing for the other person as well a lot of the time we were like we wanted the other person to enjoy reading what we had written yeah makes it makes in love you know yeah that kind of thing and um and it's really interesting this question of you know who do you write for you know writing nature writing i always had a sort of very vague idea of a sort of imaginary reader but a voice to someone who wanted to sort of go on a journey with me to learn or see the things that I'd seen Mm. and and this was a very very different feeling it was very intimate and just very very funny I mean it was so much fun at some points I honestly felt it was illegal like are we allowed to be doing this book (laughs) you know there's so much swearing in it (laughs) (laughs) Helen what do you think fans of your other books will find to enjoy and profit there's a couple of black kites, if they like hawks, you know, <laughs> dotted through. Well, I mean, it's a very different book. Um, obviously, I'm laughing at myself there, not at the question. Uh, it really is not what I expected to to ever write. I mean, the idea of me writing th- writing horror, for example, you know, no, that that was never something on my radar. But if you you know, my nature writing is is so much of it is about the way we read our own societal mores and our own needs into the natural world and then we read them back from the natural world and we use them to prove the rightness of our own ideas to ourselves there's a lot of a lot of again this sort of sense of nostalgia and a lost past and how we need to kind of that's kind of threaded through a lot of conservation biology and some of it's very very fascinating and always has been to me so those themes are right the way through my nature writing and a lot of those themes are also in profit, including, you know, I've always had this interest in military history as well and, um, and aviation and stuff like that. And um, a lot of that is in my nature writing and a lot of that's in profit. So, yeah, I think if you read profit not knowing <laughs> that it was me and you were familiar with my previous works, you might be like, oh, it's a bit weird. It's a bit Helen. But, yeah, no, I... I no, you actually probably you wouldn't think that, would you? No, I don't know because <laughs> there's a lot of themes that that do match your previous writing. There's a lot to do with uh, with grief, with yeah. um, with coping, with uh, a trauma, with trauma, yeah. and with how history serves the individual as well, yeah. and how a personal a personal history can influence someone's future and someone's present and what that means for and how an that relates yeah and that, how that relates to historical consciousness yeah exactly yeah. yeah so there are themes it's just that because you're just saying he instead of and they instead of and then i went down the you know it's it's yeah. just not deeply not deep personal down. the way that nonfiction feels mm. fiction i think gives you a direct view into a lot of the themes that uh that you write about and it just gives you a different road to that direct view mm. no it was it was, uh, it was a fascinating thing to do and it was a real relief during the pandemic also to not only work as a in a collaborative team but to not write about myself it was the last thing I wanted to do so I ended up writing with sin this book about a couple of total disasters <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about them which is 
<laughs> so it's a it's kind of an odd couple comedy at first. We have uh, the I guess primary protagonist Sunil Rao is tall, camp, hedonistic. He's a junkie, and his partner and bodyguard Adam Rubenstein is short, buttoned up, laconic, sort of special forces military type. And their relationship starts off as a comedy, but it becomes something much more than that. Can you speak a little about the origins of their special dynamic? Because I get the impression Rao in particular was incredibly fun to write. I just like uh, off the top of this, I just really want to say real quick that that Adam's not short. Like Rao's just very tall. <laughs> he just Rao calls Adam short. So he does. <laughs> yeah, he, he calls him a short arse. <laughs> yeah, but then you know uh, Adam's like six one or something. I don't know. I don't know. He's about six foot. I think. Yeah. No, yeah, no. Rao, I'm, I'm Rao sorry. Just, as a, as a just... reader, as a reader, I'm telling you, he's objectively no taller than five foot eight. You know, one of the funniest eight. things about this. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're getting away from the question here, but like the the thing that I really enjoyed early on with people reading drafts of the book and then later on ARCs is that we describe Adam Rubenstein pretty clearly. You know, Very, he's yeah. he's not as tall as Rao. Should we yes. really? Okay, that? he's not as tall. You know, he's got dark <laughs> hair. He's got dark eyes. He's like, you know, he looks kind of slight, he's even wiry. though he's very, you know, he's yeah. wiry. And then, like, people would read the book and they just instantly plug in their own fantasy of, like, what Adam Rubenstein should yeah. look like. So we had people say, he's, he's like, he's, like, really tall and, and hugely muscly and kind of blonde, like, like Reacher. We'd be like, what? What? How did you get <laughs> So there? it was really interesting, you know, that, uh, that archetype of the strong and silent kind of super soldier. He's Matt Damon so... with dark hair. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. And that tells us everything it we need to know. It tells us everything we need to know, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Rao was really fun. You know, we do joke that I found Rao a little easier to write than Adam. Mm. I, I don't know why you're looking at me about that. No, I, uh, I, I did find Adam a little bit easier to write for um, reasons that I'm sure are mysterious. I'm a little bit more stoic than Helen. Uh, a lot more stoic. A little bit more stoic than Helen. And, you could um, actually write American dialogue, which I, I can't. I could write American dialogue. Um, a lot of the times when uh, Helen was writing parts for Adam, it would come out really Jane Austen and ornate and... Um, Oh, but we we wouldn't be able to do that, Raoul. You know, <laughs> would, would, would be so simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So that, but if they're an odd couple, that I mean, there's you know the odd couple dynamic was something we always wanted. It's it's yeah. such an odd standard, and you know we go you think X Files, we think X Files. There's like nearly every spy thriller has like like Man, Man from Uncle, Man from Uncle, you and know. also at the time uh, another video game influence was Disco Elysium, and we just kept on seeing these too obvious like the mess and the the straight man and it was always about like the hidden depth between the two of them and mm. what they mean for the the media that they're in and so that's basically that's where we started yeah. and fan and fan fiction as well yes, you know this the idea of um you know the, the sort of stoic but deeply sensitive underneath straight <laughs> man is is a classic but you know, everywhere from Peep Show to you know to Disco Elysium to all those all those archetypes came in, and um, they're really fun to play with. But to make it kind of more interesting and maybe more philosophical, we also gave them sort of powers, you know, yeah. which we didn't expect early on. That was kind of a thing we that was a really fun thing to figure out. Early figure on. out. Yeah. yeah. So Rao has this extraordinary ability to know the truth about propositional statements about the world. He's not a lie detector. If someone is lying but saying by mistake something true about the world, he won't know they're lying. You know, he he can only tell what's true about the world, and that's a, a really interesting 
thing philosophically to conjure with. And then Adam. Uh, Adam, Adam is, uh, I call him a null. I think that he's, he's a really fun government uh, tool, essentially, where he, he can go from room to room and nobody would notice him. And that makes him a very effective sniper, I think. But mainly the, the big thing about him is that Rao can't tell the truth about Adam, anything about Adam. He can't tell if Adam's lying. He can't tell if Adam's telling the truth. He finds it really difficult whenever someone says something about Adam to figure it out either. It's, it's all very uh, complicated for, for We were laughing a lot when we, start, when we worked this out because it had to happen, this sort mm. of dyad thing. But we also were very, very aware that it did sound a bit like Twilight. A little bit like Twilight. <laughs> so we, we kind of built the book out of all the joyful tropes we could mm. possibly think of. Like we crammed them in. I mean, if you've read it, you know, you've got, you know, Bond villain type headquarters. You've got ski lodges in Aspen. You've got, you know, it, it's all there. Miller, um, Miller says, don't make me regret don't this. Don't make me regret yeah. this, yeah. So there's, uh, there's a lot that we just, we just wanted to have fun and uh, be really serious and sad and uh, yeah. psychedelic at the same time. At what point did you know it would be a love story? Oh, from the start. From the start, yeah. Yeah, we wanted a big goddamn romance. Yeah, for Absolutely. sure. Yeah, there's no point in in for us to write about these kinds of characters and not give them the story that they needed to have. In every single piece of media that we were talking about, those characters are deeply in love and entwined soul-wise, like all throughout those TV shows, movies, books, video games. And it always comes down to them never actually admitting it or being able to see that kind of love, whether it's romantic or not, it is a deep kind of love that goes between those characters. And we just didn't want to be another piece of media that didn't do the characters justice. Yeah. And, and we wanted to do them justice. And absolutely. And and in terms of, you know, the, the other theme of the book, the notion of nostalgia, I mean, you know, nostalgia is you know i've talked about this before uh with a few people you know how you know nostalgia is a very very obvious consequence of this sort of stage of late capitalism but it's also a consequence of us genuinely not being able to look forward to a livable future mm -hmm. like we have to look back what we can't imagine a progressive and you know possible future it's 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 really hard now so you know what have we got that can fight against nostalgia you know and i think you know one of the answers is love it's timeless it presupposes some kind of future. So it was a, you know, when the book sort of says love will save the world, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it sounds like a spoiler, but it's more complicated than, than mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Just want to come back to Rao's superpower. Yeah. Helen, did your academic background in the history and philosophy of science influence your thinking about Rao's ability to know the truth? Because this is a subject hugely concerned with questions of truth finding and fact making. <laughs> Yeah, I had to. Um, I, I, I'm afraid I was more of the historian okay. side of the history so of science. We're not going to talk about a... Popper and Kuhn now, if, if you don't no, want no, to. We're not, we're not <laughs> about Kuhn. Um, we, we are not. We're definitely not going to talk about Popper. Um, basically, we, we, you know, so I, I basically rang up my, my, you know, dear old friend Christina McLeish. She's a philosopher of language. Um, has got a brain that would cleave slate. She's terrifyingly sure. clever, and you know, she wrote a whole PhD on the problem of reference. And you know, I sort of said, you know can Rao do this? And she sort of thought about it a bit and said, yeah, that would that would explain why he can also detect fakes because he can understand the chain of kind of reference right back to sort of dot with, so he'll be able to do that. He wouldn't be able to do that. And and she would kind of tutor me 
And then I tell Sin and Sin would roll her up. (laughs) It's a fiction book, Alan. A lot of it had to do with, um, yeah, we we had to figure out what was relevant for fiction. There's... We wanted it to be grounded in as much reality and philosophical weight as possible because we wanted to be able to talk about it. We wanted it to be real. It wasn't just like X-Men or whatever. We wanted it to be as real as it could it's be. It's philosophically grounded. Yeah. yeah. And Christina helped a lot. In fact, without Christina, I don't think that Rao would make a lot of sense. No, and she 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 loves the book in the sense that she says quite often we talk about, you know, how how the kind of the world of the book works. And she said, you know, the thing that she loves about the book most now, apart from the banter and the love story, is that the book is completely and utterly comprehensible. The characters are comprehensible. The way that Rao's gift works is comprehensible. She said the thing about the world building is it's, the world building works really, really well, but it's an in, inherently an incredibly unstable world mm-hmm. that the book operates in. It's, it's, a, it's a universe just one step from our own but things are happening in it that really don't make any physical sense whatsoever. And I think that was really important. And also connected with that, I'm sorry, I'm on a roll no, now. Go. Connected with that is that we decided to make the book always in the point of view of the characters or always in their heads, which means that as a reader, it's really interesting because you don't get the big exposition at the end where a sort of omniscient narrator tells you what everything is. You have to piece it together. And that was that was important. Well, that we didn't, was important we, we, we for, didn't want yeah. to talk down to readers ever. So like a lot of the theory behind it is having the wherewithal when we're writing to have everything available to the reader, but not necessarily available to the characters. Mm. And that was fun. That was like a, that was like a puzzle that we got to put together along with the questions that we had to ask about when Rao would know something, how Rao would know something, what it feels like for Rao, things like that. Yeah. yeah. And Rao, you know, a past master of lying to himself. So, yeah. you know, he's he's not the most reliable. Uh, he's narrators. not the most reliable of narrators. No. <laughs> We're living in the post-truth age, but the novel isn't simply a rebuke to relativists or purveyors of misinformation. The truth is, as you've just alluded to, very much a poison chalice for Rao. Can you speak a little about that? Yes, philosophically and psychologically, you know, we could talk about what it, I mean, it's not in the book, but I like to think about what it might be like for a small child who can tell when things are true and when things aren't true, growing up expecting that that would be something that everyone can do. You know, there must have been a moment in his childhood when he realizes that, you know, people lie all the time, but they don't know that they're not telling Mm -hmm. the truth. That must have been a really isolating moment. I think he's an incredibly lonely man. He is uh, very oppositional, uh, very sarcastic, but very tender. And and I think, you know, some in the book, we we sort of thought what would be the logical end to having a gift like that. And we realized that with a gift to be able to tell when someone says truth or not, he would have ended up in the terrible CIA prisons in Kabul, ground truthing interrogations. And that would have, you know, that that would have been a horror. So we did that. So we did that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because there is that uh, difficult line between people who are telling the truth because they're telling the truth and people who are lying to be free. And we did touch upon that and um, and what that would do to absolutely uh, the people involved and Rao involved. Yeah. Yeah. Like people, people wanting, you know, telling their interrogators things. They want to sort of give them gifts to 
you know, they want to kind of please interrogate us after a lot. You know, they, I've read all those transcripts and they're absolutely horrifying. Mm. And there's Rao in the room telling both the interrogators and the prisoners that what there's, you know, that it's not true. Yeah. And we're in this uh, position, as you said, it's like we're in this position now societally where we live in a very black and white day, right, where everything's either true or false, it's uh, fake or real and things like that. And it's often a lot of the time things aren't that simple. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're real simple, but we don't give anyone the chance to have a gray area. And that was really fun to play around with as well, with a character who can tell the truth of things. Yeah, Rao, Rao trying very, very hard to know the truth of things, but knowing that language can't ever really quite get you there because it doesn't, it isn't angled exactly to reality. So he you know, tries to sort of say statements out loud in many different languages in mm. order to try and encounter it. But it's exhausting, you know, there's a lot of indeterminacy and, and you know, vagueness. Yeah. So, he, you know, he can't always know what's true and what isn't. But it turns out that his ability to know what's true has this extraordinary consequence much later in the book, which I should not reveal. Now. <laughs> oh, no, let's not. But yeah, yeah. We want people to buy he's... the book. We don't want to ruin it for them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he's, he's a, he has a nightmare. You know, he's an addict. He, he has fights. He, you know, he, he, his truth-telling ability of his is such that, you know, he will go out and honestly seek to get punched in the face because he's worked out that when he's in extreme pain, he can't tell what's true and what isn't, and it's a relief. So he has got this terrible kind of masochism thing going, mm. which again, you know, it's it's kind of fun to sort of play with because it's not only a sort of true to his character, but it's also a classic fan fiction trope. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. So we love him. You know, we really do love him, but he is an absolute nightmare. Yes. I, I quite often think of him meeting George Smiley. Um, you know, I don't think right, Smiley any... would have been able to handle him. But... Smiley, would, Smiley would not have been able to handle Rao at all, no. <laughs> How did you navigate the politics of the military-industrial complex and of biological warfare? Because on the one hand, the novel does overtly condemn the military-industrial complex. On the other hand, you know, Rao, he does have a disposition towards violence that you've just alluded to, and Adam is a special forces type guy, and he's a hero. He's not uh, villain in any way he's wonderful <laughs> <laughs> i love that you said that i think they're both both quite awful human beings oh, actually no, 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 i no. mean You're i love them i love them to pieces but they're not good people well they're, they're not they're not good people they're not bad people i think that we wrote people yeah and um a lot of the time like uh our day-to-day -day, a lot like that we have this thing with uh with characters where they have to be good, they have to be bad. Otherwise, how will we be able to tell the point of the story if they're not good or bad? And particularly or... with queer characters too, yeah. there's a sense that they have to be, you know, very good people. Yeah, and or, that's you know, just not no. true <laughs> day to day. That's not true of actual people. So we didn't really, we didn't stress about the the military complex we, too hard. We we made Adam a cynic. Yeah. A, deep, deep cynic, you know, this guy was raised in a military family. He, you know, he's this kind of really sensitive Jewish kid, you know, that, that was he, really he, into astro astronomy. Yeah, you know, but he, he had no choice. He had no choice. He was always going to go into the military. You know, that was just, there was just no way out for him. And so he better be good at it. Yeah. So, you know, I think looking at the backstories of the characters and seeing why this, this kid would have ended up being this person, I think, was was sort of, again, a political kind of actress writing but um i mean it was kind of fun to work with the nuances of the characters like that but at the same time you know we do have a sort of 
you know, the villains of the piece. Mm-hmm. We really delighted in making them really quite two-dimensionally in oh, many yeah. ways. <laughs> you know, they, they really bad. are just bad people. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're told um, explicitly that one of them is a psychopath. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, she yeah, is, yeah, yeah. She's a psychopath, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, Ra- Ralph thinks it's great. Yeah. Yeah. An actual psychopath, yeah. a real one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so playing with the sort of the, the kind of um, the sort of theatricality and the kind of um, of, of the, those tropes, and then mm-hmm. putting them against what we really hope is quite serious and gritty kind of psychological stuff, and then mixing in humor as well and horror, we we just we just couldn't stop, could we? We just went. We did have to eventually, but we it was difficult. We um we just enjoyed understanding them a lot of the time. So we knew what we wanted everybody to do. We knew all the pieces, we knew all the the moving parts. But there were times where both of us would like um look at what we had made for the day. And we would then we would quote unquote clock off right mm. from the writing, and then like an hour later, the, the another person would turn up and say, "I've just figured this out about the character. This is why he's doing this. This like yeah. these threads from his past is why he says this now. This is what led him there." And that was, it amazing. did feel we were we were finding out about the characters rather than inventing them by that point. It when I'd, I'd never experienced anything like that before. It was extraordinary. And then we had like hilarious discussions about, well, hilarious isn't quite the right word. Um, I wanted a really happy ending and Sue didn't. No, I don't believe in happy endings. So we managed to kind of put both in. That was what we ended up doing. I don't think we should talk about the ending anymore. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do want to dig a bit into the biggest idea of the book, which is the profit drug itself. Can you explain that conceit for us? What is profit? What does it do? Ooh. Okay, so what we learn about it in the book is that um, some material scientists at Duke University were creating a novel high temperature superconductor. They had a sample in the diamond vise and they were working on it. And then bad things started happening. All the people in the lab started getting these weird nostalgic compulsions. And they discovered there was a thin film on the surface of this sample. So it's not made by the scientists. It's, It's sort of, we discover later it's come from elsewhere. So it's not actually made by humans. Um, the clues are kind of there that this eventually, I mean, I, I don't think we, we, we can't give too much away, but when, when it, when it interacts with people, it causes a kind of psychic trauma to them and it makes them imagine in sort of desperate sort of reach for safety, something from their childhood, an object, because they have a representational state of some memory of something that makes them feel safe and home and this causes them to and go this into causes a them to, yeah. catatonic state. yeah and then they make this object this object actually is made by profit and it appears right in front of them and if they contact it they go into a kind of a trance and if you take the object away uh, it doesn't, end, doesn't well. end well <laughs> so you know this was a kind of this this notion of literally calling the objects into existence we actually had some fun times on twitter with that we we asked people if you could summon one object from your past that represented safety, what would it be? And we had just this outpouring of people. We ended up with a spreadsheet, didn't we? Yeah, we had a spreadsheet in the end. We, yeah, it was everything from button boxes to childhood homes. Or like trees from the front yard. Uh, Pets was a really common Yeah, a few really weird people said ex-girlfriends, which, you know, wasn't quite under the category objects for us. So Mm -hmm. we weren't very happy about that. Um, Nevertheless, you you kind of go there. 
You go. We there. do kind of. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So the thing about profit is that every single human brain it interacts with it. It conjures something. It 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 conjures something, but it but also learns about human brains. It goes on. Yeah. So it starts to evolve as the book goes on, and its effects change. And um. And you know, do I have to stop you before you tell the whole? I'm not telling the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that, that one of the most beautiful moments in the constructing of this book was the moment where Sid and I were actually in the same place because we decided to actually meet. Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> near the end of writing the book. We decided we should probably meet so in we, person. Yeah. So uh, we did do that. And we just we had this moment of realizing that there'd be this beloved television figure. Yes. And I'm American going to stop TV. You I'm not going to say yeah. any more, but this, this, um, this very beloved figure would have to take a, a place and it would have to appear right at the end and we were just overjoyed how many people we'd really really mess up with that yeah well you know that's uh that's really where i come in i really enjoy writing horror i really enjoyed watching helen learn how to write horror that was great and i like the responses to um some of the more personal objects along in the book and how real people react to seeing those things in the book and uh seeing those things that they know and having to consider them a danger. Yeah, we had people come up to us at this booksellers convention who read the book and were just, you know, really angry with us. Yeah, for using a certain... Oh, no, you've destroyed Scrabble for me forever. Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, we, the, the, thing about, the thing about profit as a concept is that, you know, we have worked it out. We, we know exactly what it is and what, you know, what it's doing and how it works. And But we, we made a really clear decision early on that we weren't going to give the readers everything exhaustively partly because we really you know it's it's that sort of sense a bit like a i always think it's a bit like a kind of cryptic crossword mm -hmm. it's difficulty is not always something that's meant to be forbidding sometimes it's an act of generosity and that you know hey why don't we all have fun kind of yeah working it out um you know there's no right or wrong answers there it's it sort of delves into the theological a bit as well yeah, which there's was a, fun there's a lot that we do with profit that is um like I said before, there's there's a lot of gray area. And, and in that, I think we allowed for a lot of yes and no's uh, within the story, within the characters, within the ending even, yeah. and let there be threads mm. uh, that are up to the reader and not necessarily up to us. But we but, have some ideas. Yeah, we have some ideas. We of... might be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but we have some ideas of there are threads in this story that, yeah. that aren't closed that are open-ended that we kind of already know we want to kind of pick up and we want to write. Maybe We're not so. allowed to say that. Are we? No. Okay. I we, mean, well, you have, you like have a whole, whole X-Files style department that could go on to tell some quite good stories. <laughs> in the yeah, world. the EIO, yeah, that made me laugh so much. Farm, Calling yeah. it the EIO is just, it's just <laughs> endlessly amusing to me. I could just imagine Rao laughing his head off. The what? <laughs> yeah, the extra natural incident office. Yeah, we we did we did enjoy that kind of thing. Um, we had a lot of fun. There's a lot of jokes. Yeah, um, we've been rereading with the publication and uh, with the audiobook as well, um, being released recently. We've been rereading and and listening to it, and uh, we're actually really surprised at how many jokes we got in there. We uh, we were very serious a lot of the time, but. It's those those two book. those two characters, as you say, you put them in the same room and they're just funny. Yeah. So, which is very self indulgent, I think. But we're having a blast. What are you both nostalgic for, and did it make it into the novel? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, uh, individual objects, I know what they are. I have them on my 
kitchen windowsill and they're two plastic dinosaurs I got from the Natural History Museum when I was a kid. They represent a real time of freedom for me. My parents would go shopping in London and then drop me off at the Natural History Museum in London and let me just run around and learn everything. I mean, they'd probably be arrested now if they did that. But <laughs> So that, that was me in the halls of knowledge, just having the best time. So I think physical objects, that nostalgia, I don't know. I'd like to live in a sort of slightly progressive country. That would be nice. I think I genuinely have a nostalgia for that. Um, that sounds kind of a very wishy-washy kind of vague thing to say, but yeah. Oh, um, my objects, my nostalgia. It's difficult. I uh, I moved around as a kid a lot. So I moved from uh, California to Ireland to California to Ireland uh, and back again. And um, it meant that you get very attached to certain objects but more than anything else you get attached to places and you get attached to smells or sounds um and people because you realize very quickly at a young age that there are some people that you're just not going to see again but they still exist you're just not going to see them again and so they tend to represent the past and places that you'll never reach again and so there's a lot of objects and toys that i brought with me or left behind but I would say that there's, you know, the in LA where we used to live, the street had a had a. I'm gonna do the tree thing. There was a tree at the end of the street, and that was like as far as I could go on my street uh, without being in trouble. And so I would constantly bike from my house to like four doors down, five doors down, to the to the corner where I knew that tree was. We actually went back there a while ago. I think I was like 14 or something. Is it still there? No. Oh, and, no. Uh, and it was gone or I didn't remember it right or something. And I was devastated. Well, let's, you know, if profit really does appear in this world, then that's going to be. That might be. That it. might be the object. Yeah. These objects are, are incredibly uncanny. They're not ever quite the thing that they purport to be. And that reminded me enormously of images produced by generative AI. And you're running this in lockdown, so I don't think you would have had that in mind. But has it been weird for you with Midjourney and other generative AI tools becoming widely available? It got, yeah, it got really strange, actually, for us, because we were in editing uh, mm. when Midjourney and Dolly and stuff like that became like, you remember that like a week or so on Twitter when everybody was posting up like the four pictures that you would get on Midjourney for whatever prompt that you would Dolly. put in? Yeah, 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 or Dolly. yeah. And it was really bizarre because I think at that point there was a lot of discussion about what, what dangers obviously that uh, AI uh, represents for art and for writers and for musicians. But also personally for us, we realized that we could like type in a thing that Prophet had created and we could see how wrong it was. Because Yeah, because Prophet is basically scraping human brains for representation yeah. representations of objects that in the same are in way their that memory. AI is scraping. But they're not perfect, yeah. right? They're not perfect because people's memories aren't perfect. You know, in, in the beginning, for example, there's an American diner that has no has no toilets, has no means of making coffee because mm -hmm. those things weren't in the phenomenology of the the sort of image that the the person who was exposed had so you know this notion of objects that come out wrong because the the way those images and representations are collected um is flawed uh i think is definitely something that is terrifyingly chiming now with what's going on and yeah. particularly 
particularly later in the book when profit again I, you know i hope it's not too much of a spoiler but it, you know the sorts of things that start to appear aren't just generated from one person's brain but a kind of much more amorphous kind of social memory of a certain generations mm-hmm. and stuff like that and they become really strange so you know in ai they're called hallucinations hallucinations yeah yeah so yes um it's been very strange and a couple of times i've really freaked out you know I, i've opened the news in the morning that's very telling that i say that these days um <laughs> gone to the days of the newspapers and you know this this you know stories are about ai they're about generative ai and they're about um nostalgia and they're about you know new ips new ips being you know or old ips being yeah. re- recycled by hollywood and you know articles on the toys that people miss most from when they were children and it just you know it it's it sort of you know, am I a brain in a vat? You know, this is very, very strange. Yeah, so very I feel this book really has met its moment. And I'm really glad that it's engaged like this with some of the sharper aspects of where we are now. But we didn't really expect that when we wrote it. We were just having a blast. Well, we know, that's that's true and it isn't. So we we knew that this was happening. We In the middle of writing, we were in the middle of the book when mm. they announced the Barbie movie was going to Yeah, go yeah, ahead. yeah, that's true. And we knew that there were, we were still in this, like, if you recall at the time, there was something going on with uh, Disney, especially where they were just regurgitating their own IPs. They were like, remember the classic era of Disney? Would you like to watch a live action version of that? That isn't quite as good. The most uncanny thing imaginable for me is a live action. Concert. You know, <laughs> and so can't. we we were in the middle of this. It was the same with video games. They were constantly re releasing collections from the Mm. 80s they were doing these little mini consoles because they knew that people would buy it because it was nostalgic even before that Mm. there's that whole are you a 90s baby are you an 80s baby do you remember tamagotchis you know that kind of thing Mm. and it was constant and in the middle of that there are fascists saying you remember the good old days Mm. Do you remember that? Remember? And that's the real danger of the nostalgia. And that's what we were talking about. Yeah, a lot the, of the, the time. way the way that the way that um So we were having a blast. Yeah. I mean but <laughs> <laughs> I think Svet there's an extraordinary writer called Svet, Svetlana um Boyim who wrote a book on nostalgia and and she puts it really beautifully. She talks a lot about how, you know, first generation you know, sort of refugees and migrants from various cultures tend to avoid nostalgia. They think it's a trap. It's very often second generation you know, that, that, that it can get lost in, in nostalgia for, for, for places. So I thought that was fascinating. But she talks a lot about how if you break down the word nostalgia into its component parts, so there's nostos, which is, um, you know, a return to home, and there's algia, which is, is pain. the pain. She says the, al- the, the you know, the, the, the pain part of it, the longing, is not necessarily problematic politically because it's actually quite generative. You're looking for something. Mm-hmm. You haven't found it. It doesn't need to be. Um, yeah, it's something a that's re- it's, it's a constant. It's a, it's a kind of you know you you can make things to try and find the place, but you're constantly you know it's a sort of what's good, what's bad, you know where are we, what yeah. do we need? That kind of longing is very generative. But if you go to the home part of it, the returning home, that's the problematic part. That's the part that once you start trying to conjure a home that you want to rebuild or return to, that in itself always excludes people that you don't want to be there. So, you know, I think nostalgia is really interesting in the sense that it is those two different words yoked together. Um, and, you know, I like to think that the the yearning for a better place is something that's still possible. It doesn't have to be looking backwards. But I am really, I mean, 
freaked out by the fact that AI now has got all the fingers right because that was like my last. Yeah, that was the only way to tell <laughs> whether or not they were messing up. But it's we do spend a lot of our time passing uh, articles back and forth going, yeah. oh, whoops, we wrote about that um, yeah. and here it is. That's scary. And it's interesting, though, because it clearly means that it was always in the um, cultural consciousness. It was always on the way. And, and we just kind of extrapolated. We were lucky, I yeah. think, that we wrote at a certain time. But, I mean, you know, like the pandemic, you know, they, they you know one of the real truisms about nostalgia research is that as a, as a discipline, which is quite interesting discipline, it's, it's, it's sort of from all over, but is the fact that, you know, nostalgia definitely happens after cultural dislocations or social dislocations. So 9-11, wars, you know, famines, um, any kind of economic shock. But I think what's different now is the way that that it's been, it's so intimately tied to late capitalism and the military industrial corporate entertainment complex yeah. that it does seem that there's very little way out right now. So it's, it's, it's quite a frightening time to be. Given yeah. that, why endorse hope? What else is there to endorse? I mean, <laughs> I mean, Sin and I have probably have different. I don't know. We do have different views on it. Um, but yeah, no, there there is a lot of aggressive optimism. I say that it's um, optimistic nihilism, right? I got to a point in the middle of the lockdowns where, you know, I had lost a lot of people, like a lot of people had, and we weren't allowed outside our houses, and it was very scary. And I got to a place where it was a very strong screw it idea, but that screw it didn't turn into some angry, angsty, there's nothing to be done uh, place. It was really kind of like, if it's so bad, then why not do good things? Then why not be uh, pleasant and why not do things that are fun to do and why not you know chase after something that's nice because if if, if everything's going to shit it's very existentialist i love it yeah then why not why not yeah. why choose a dark path when you can choose anything and nothing matters mm. there's actually a really common uh meme that's uh essentially it's taken from uh everything everywhere all at once where uh, one person is on one side of the bus and it's dark and he's looking into the trees and it's and he's sad and then the other person is looking at like the fields and the sun is out and he's happy and the sad guy is like nothing matters and the happy guy is like nothing matters and that's yeah 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 totally. that's how I see endorsing hope like mm. no if nothing matters then be good then then be pleasant, then show some joy, uh, have fun with your friends, buy things that you like. If we're in the middle of this late stage capitalism machine where we can't get out, then use it. I don't know, I think, you know, I think we, the book itself is a kind of, it, it works against it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I think that I'm a little bit more hopeful than you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not quite as nihilistic. Um, you know, I, I think about a lot of commentators like, you know, Rebecca Solnit's famous for saying this, is that, you know, that, that you know, we need to kind of open up a space for uncertainty in the future. Mm -hmm. That's the thing we need. We need it. We need to we need to hope not that everything's going to be brilliant at the end, but to hope that we can still keep that uncertainty going about what's going to happen. Because if we're up too optimistic, we won't do anything. Mm -hmm. If we're too pessimistic, we'll do nothing. We'll just go under our duvets and weep. <laughs> 
we need to work really hard to keep that space open for hope and um it's the it's the least it's the least worst option you know the world is still full of beauties um yeah. a lot of terrible things are happening all the time i've got 25 baby sparrows in my garden today which was a little <laughs> moment of joy you know my 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 take on it is um if i have to choose between despair and hope i'm going to work really hard and fight for the second one yeah it seems like a lovely place to end sin helen thank you so much thank you, thank you. It's been a joy this episode starred Helen MacDonald and Sin Blachet. It was produced and presented by me, and I make this series with Esme Bright and Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Helen and Sin's novel Prophet has just come out. It's a wild ride. Pick it up before it inevitably gets turned into a Hollywood movie that doesn't quite do it justice. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>